for those of you who haven't met me, my name is Mark. I'm, I'm a teaching pastor down in Phoenix, Arizona, where it is today, 112 degrees. I'm glad to be here with you. Uh, before I went to Phoenix, I was, a I was a teacher at Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri. 22 years, I was that geek nerd Bible prof. So that's, that's really still in my bones. And one of the students I wanted to tell you about, she was different than really any other student I'd ever had. Uh, she had been a prostitute. And surprise, surprise, we don't get a lot of those in Bible college. But Juliet Rose came to us after she left that lifestyle, the Lord got a hold of her heart. I want to tell you the background of her story. And I'm going to, I'm going to tell you kind of cryptically because I know we're a mixed audience here. When Juliet was 15 years old, a single mom, her dad is in prison. And her mom had a string of boyfriends that came in and out of the house. That's not always safe for a young woman. And when she was 15, the boyfriend at the time came into her room while her mom was away and told Juliet what he intended to do. When mom got home, Juliet pulled her mother aside and said, Mom, here's what your boyfriend said he was going to do, and I'm not safe in the house. One of us has to leave. And her mother looked at her and said, I'm going to miss you. I know that's stunning, but before you judge her, just understand, her mom was speaking out of her own pain and brokenness, her own insecurities and past traumas. But Juliet did leave, and she decided that she was going to go to Las Vegas, and she made a living in Las Vegas at 15 years old about how you would expect her to. And because of that lifestyle, she also did a lot of drugs to numb the pain and when you do drugs, you don't make good decisions. It was a downward spiral for her. Over the course of years, she had a couple of kids. And uh, dads are not around, of course. And at one point, at 21 years old, she gets in a vehicle under the influence, has an accident. She was okay, but she had killed her best friend in the accident. That, that's just trauma that she wasn't sure she could ever get over. But she had more trauma on top of that. She was arrested multiple times. And the last time she was arrested, uh, Child Protective Services came and took her two children away from her. It was the right decision to make. She knew it was the right decision. But it took her to rock bottom. She was ready to hear about Jesus. And oddly, the person who told her about Jesus was her father from prison. Those of you in Lyman might be able to relate to this. Your faith has no bars on it. And she came to Christ through her father and began to put the pieces of her life back together. So by the time I met her, she had already given up that lifestyle. She was free from drugs and she was at the college studying. And she wasn't a great student. In fact, she struggled a lot. <laughs> when you do that much math, it's hard to concentrate at times. But she did graduate from the college and went into ministry. And I, I tell you her story because it, is so like this woman we find in Luke chapter 7. If you have a Bible, you can find the table of contents, the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be in chapter 7 where we're introduced to her in verse 36. She came into a party, and Jesus was the center of the party, as you might suspect. To set the stage for you, the, the room where Jesus was in, the banquet hall, was about the size of this square stage. 
It's not huge, but it's enough for 12 adult males to recline at table. Now, they didn't sit at the table. They actually laid down uh, on cushions with their left arm. Imagine a U-shaped uh, table uh, where these uh, men are sitting. The, the one who's throwing the banquet is going to be at the head of the U. And the most honored seat, and all the seats were not literally numbered, but they had value. The most honored seat was to his back. So that's where Jesus would have been. The second most honored is to his chest, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, all around the U. You get the picture? And the servants would come in the middle of the U and serve the meal. Jesus is the honored guest, but he is not honored. How do we know? Well, when Jesus came in, he wasn't greeted with a kiss by his host. We actually know the name of the host. His name was Simon. He was a Pharisee who was the chief Pharisee of that particular village and synagogue. He didn't greet Jesus with a kiss. You've seen it in the Middle East, kiss on the right cheek, kiss on the left. Weird for us, but normal for them. He didn't wash his feet. And when you walk on dusty roads in Birkenstocks and then go into someone's house with Persian rugs, you kind of need to wash your feet. But the servants were not told to wash Jesus' feet. Normally, a guest of Jesus' stature, you would anoint their head with oil. Just a little thimble full of oil. It was kind of a goodwill gesture. No thank you, but for them, they loved it. Jesus didn't get any normal greeting. He didn't get any social, like, common courtesies. He, he wasn't honored, so he knows. Jesus knows this meal is not an honoring of him. It's an entrapment for him. And Simon has brought him there so he could trap him in something he said so that his enemies, the religious leaders, could get mad at him. And look, if you want to be mad at Jesus, he will almost always oblige you. He will almost always do something that you could complain about. Such was the day. This, pub, this gathering was actually a public event. Now, it's a private home, but right outside the banquet hall, with open doors and open windows, there's a courtyard where people in the village could gather they didn't have TV, so not a lot of entertainment. They would love to see how the rich people ate. They would love to eavesdrop on this conversation, particularly between their beloved rabbi, Simon, and this upstart preacher, Jesus. So the courtyard is packed with people. And one of the people who came into the courtyard was this woman. It says that she had a reputation in town. And... Typically, women back then got reputations about the same way that women get bad reputations today. She was morally loose. And we get a glimpse in that because her hair is let down. And proper women did not go into public with their hair let down. They, they, they kept it pulled up. So she is not a proper woman. Your guess is as good as mine, but I'm saying she was likely a public prostitute. She had been forced into human trafficking because of her situation in life. Women don't typically choose that. It's like, there's not a bunch of little girls at a slumber party say, I want to grow up and be, just, no. So she's, she's forced into the situation. And the people, this is, you know how this works. The people who mock her or look down on her are the same people who hire her. And she comes into the courtyard. She just doesn't stay in the crowd. She does the unthinkable. She crosses over the threshold into Simon's house, walks into the banquet hall, and stands at Jesus' feet. Never says a word, 
just weeps. Crocodile tears rain on Jesus' unwashed feet. And then the little mud puddles between his toes begin to gather. You're not going to believe what happened next. She kneels down at Jesus' feet. She's washed them with her tears and she takes her hair and she cleans his muddy feet with her hair. And from underneath her blouse, she pulls this little alabaster jar of ointment. This is not perfume. This is the resin from which you make perfume. A thimble full of this resin could make a gallon of perfume. It's part of her professional accoutrements. This is very valuable. And she takes the most valuable thing she has and puts it on the least valuable part of Jesus' body, his feet. They wouldn't even put ointment on someone's head. They put oil on their head. But this woman, weeping at his feet, puts this ointment on his feet. Simon, of course, is completely undone by this. He knows her reputation. He cannot believe that Jesus is letting that kind of woman physically touch him. And that's where we begin in the story, verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, that's important, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is touching him, that she is a sinner. Now, he never says it out loud. Of course, it's not that hard to read his mind. All you have to do is read his body posture. He is coiled up in a fetal position to get away from this woman who is right by his feet too. And then Jesus, uh, (laughs) when he said that, Jesus says to to Simon, uh, hey, I want to tell you a story, Simon. Knowing what he's thinking, he said, "I I want to tell you a story. There's these two guys that owed a lot of money. One owed 500 silver coins. The other owed 50 silver coins. Now, 50 silver coins is not a lot, but it's like the tenth of what the other guy owed. But neither of them could pay him back. The word in the Bible is money lender. Think loan shark. So if you owe 500 silver coins to a loan shark and you can't pay, what happens? Oh, you pay. But neither of them could pay. So Jesus said, Simon, let's just pretend that the loan shark eliminates the debt of both of them. Which of them would love him more? The one forgiven of 500 silver coins of debt or 50 silver coins of debt. And Simon said, well, that's simple. Simon said, it's going to be the one who is forgiven more that loves more. And the next thing that happens, I need to illustrate this for you. Because Jesus is laying it down on the ground, well, on a cushion. And it says here in the the following verse, verse 44, turning to the woman, he said to Simon. Now, Simon is in front of him at, at his chest. The woman is still at his feet, still anointing his feet, still kissing his feet. She hasn't stopped, never said a word, but hasn't stopped demonstrating loyalty and love to Jesus. He Says to Simon, looking at the woman, just imagine, Jesus locks eyes with you. Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since she came. She's still kissing his feet. 
He goes on to say, you didn't give me a greeting. You didn't anoint my head with oil. You did nothing of hospitality, but she has demonstrated that she loves me more because she has been forgiven more. And then Jesus says to her, therefore I tell you, her sins, which were many, are forgiven. Thus she loved much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven, which is a hornet's nest, I'll tell you in a minute. But those who were at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? He said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Now imagine being there. For Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, that is that's blasphemy. Because only God can forgive sins. He's had this argument before in the village of Capernaum. When these four men let down their buddy through the roof, they tore the roof open, let down their paralytic friend. They want Jesus to heal the friend. But what does Jesus do? He looks at the guy on the, on the mat and says, your sins are forgiven. Big whoop. I don't want my sins forgiven. I want my legs back. And the Pharisees there, they had a conniption. You can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Then Jesus, yeah, I know. And only God can heal a paralytic. Dude, get up and walk. And he did. Game over. He's already had the argument whether or not he can forgive sins. In this moment, it's not time for an argument with religious leaders. It's time for compassion with a woman. And some of you need that moment right now. Maybe you're uh, on the Longmont campus or the West campus. Maybe you're in Aurora or Denver or at where, wherever you are watching online or maybe on demand on a treadmill. You need a moment where it's not a religious debate. It's not an argument. It is an incident of compassion where Jesus looks you in the eye and says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. But it has to go beyond just you being healed. Here's everything I want to say in the sermon in a single sentence. You ready? Is the whole message in a single sentence. What you have done has not undone what God can do through you. What you have done has not undone what God can do through you. I didn't say what God can do in you. Because all of us believe that he can forgive us our sins. All of us believe that he can save our souls for eternity. But Jesus has more in mind for you than just being saved. He wants you to be an agent of change and love and compassion and ministry in this world. But some of you are not able to do what God has called you to do because there is a barrier between you and your destiny of ministry. And that barrier has a name. It is shame. When God created you, he made you resilient in so many ways. He knew we would experience fear, so he gave us psychological and spiritual tools for dealing with fear. He gave psychological and spiritual tools for dealing uh, with hope or a lack of hope, of fatigue, of, of energy. Like we, we are so resilient. We have this spiritual power and the psychological power to overcome great odds. But the one thing that God did not put in you, you have no mechanism for dealing with shame because God never intended for you to have shame. And when you hold on to the shame of your past, 
you will be debilitated for living towards your future. Jim and I had a conversation about this last week. He and I both agree in our experience, the most difficult thing to convince a Christian of is that they can forgive themselves for what they have done. You can let God forgive you and probably everyone, no matter where your spiritual journey is, you go, no, I can see where God could forgive me. Some of you have even experienced the forgiveness of others and you can forgive others yourself. But forgiving yourself, there's something in us that we just say, no, I need to punish myself for this. I need to hold on to this shame. I need to hold on to this baggage because it was my fault. I did it and I have to suffer for it. God never intends that for you. Because Jesus died for your sins, you can let go of that shame. Some of you have a specific incident in mind right now and you've held on to it for years, some of you for decades. And the problem with the shame is it will keep you from your destiny of ministry. Nothing you have done has undone what God can do through you. That's what I want you to see in the life of Juliet Rose. And that's what I want you to see in this life of this unnamed woman in Luke 7. I'm gonna make a guess here. I can't prove this, but I think you're going to agree with me. What Jesus does with this woman, he is going to give her a name. The author, Luke, is going to give her a name in the next chapter. Let's read from verse, chapter 7, verse, 30, verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins which were many are forgiven. Thus she loved much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven but those who were at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And listen again, again to what he said to her, your faith has saved you, go in peace. He didn't just want her to go in peace. She actually kept following him. Look at the next chapter, verse eight, or chapter eight, verse one. Sometime afterward, he went on through the towns and villages, preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and disabilities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their own resources. The Gospels never mention the names of people that Jesus heals. They only mention the names of disciples. Here's my guess. Again, I can't prove this, but what if I'm right? The woman wasn't named when she was healed. She was named when she became a disciple. And who is the first woman mentioned? Mary Magdalene. A Magdala is a village. We discovered Magdala, not me personally, but archaeologists discovered Magdala, you ready for this? 2009. It's a very recent archaeological discovery. And the first thing they found in Magdala was the synagogue. You can see a picture of it. It's a large synagogue, a beautifully decorated synagogue. And if I'm correct that Mary Magdalene is the unnamed woman of the previous chapter, then this is the synagogue that Simon led. And in the middle of it, you see a, a stone. It's a carved stone. It's about a foot and a half long. And if you look up close at the stone, you will see an image of the temple in Jerusalem. 
This is a priceless antiquity because this is the only representation of the temple in Jerusalem that was made while the temple in Jerusalem was still standing. It's a priceless archaeological fact. I saw this in about 2016, 2017. It was thrilling for me. And I always wondered, if Mary is the woman, if Mary Magdalene is the woman, then we should be able to find Simon's house because you would look for a wealthy home adjacent to the synagogue. COVID was terrible for a lot of things. It was fantastic for archaeology. And when I went back after COVID, I got to actually see a 4,000 foot square foot home adjacent to the synagogue, and there is one room in this home that has a mosaic in it. You are looking at, if I'm right, you are looking at the room where Mary Magdalene anointed Jesus' feet with her tears. Is that incredible? Well, I thought it was incredible. So when Jim and I were in Israel together with his cohort of, of people, uh, we're staying in the archaeological site. The hotel is in the archaeological site. And so after dinner, I'm in the lobby. We're just chatting with some people. And I look over at this double, double door glass door. And I thought, well, for fire code, there's no way they can lock that door. It leads right out into the archaeological site. So I went to test the door. It was open. I got, imagine me geeking out, going through this archaeological site all by myself, just walking through the, and I run across this house. I'm so excited about it. I've got to share with one of Jim's colleagues. Uh, it's a guy who, his father was the president of the college where I taught. His name is Luke. And I said, Luke, come out here. And there's kind of a special moment and uh, telling him the story. And I think right there, I think right there is where Jesus anointed her feet. So the next morning at breakfast, Luke shows me this picture. He had crossed over the barricade and gotten into, he sat on a 2,000 foot year old floor. I was so mad. You don't cross barricades, but what I was mad about was he did it before me. It was just so envious. Mary probably thought that her story ended in chapter seven. She began following Jesus. But as she followed him, she followed him all the way to the cross. She didn't have a job anymore. What are you going to do but follow Jesus? And I want you to hear about her story in chapter 19 of John. Now standing beside Jesus' cross were his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. Those are the women at the cross. The same feet that she had washed were now nailed to a tree. The same eyes that had looked at her and spoke life and love into her were now crying out in agony to his father. And if you can imagine Mary on her knees before the cross, they didn't crucify people on hilltops, they crucified people in, in public spaces. Jesus feet would have been about 18 inches off the ground, which pushed them at eye level with Mary. Those same feet that she had wiped the mud off with her hair now have blood all over them, spit all over them. Oh, how she wanted to clean his feet again. If she could have, she would have washed 
the blood off his feet. Little did she know it was the blood that was washing her soul. Imagine the consternation of Mary. My Lord, the only man who ever treated me with dignity is now being treated with the greatest indignity. She and the other women followed, even after he was taken down from the cross, followed Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to the place where they embalmed him. They laid him out on a stone and they put ointments. The Bible says they put 75 pounds of spices on Jesus' body. No Jew is gonna get a better burial than that. But for Mary, they weren't her spices. Jesus' body did not need more ointment, but Mary needed to offer her own ointment to him again. So on Sunday morning, when the crowds have dispersed, she and the other women get up at the crack of dawn and they go to the tomb. I don't know what they're thinking. There's no way they can move that stone. Uh, they weren't thinking, they were feeling. And they bring their spices to honor their Lord and they get to the tomb and the, the stone is already rolled away, which is good news, bad news, because now they can go into the tomb, but there's no body in the tomb and Mary is undone. She races to the apostles and tells them about the problem. Peter and John race back with her and they, they observe exactly what she said was true. The body is gone. They have no clue what it means. Even though Jesus had predicted his resurrection, it just didn't sink in to, to the disciples or Mary. And I don't know what Peter and John are thinking, but they just leave Mary there in a puddle of her own grief. And she's sitting there at the tomb and she looks in and there's two angels in the tomb. She doesn't know they're angels. She thinks they're gardeners or who knows what she thought they were, but she's weeping and the angels speak to them. Woman, why are you weeping? They can't figure it out. Like this is time for celebration. They don't get that Jesus, that, or Mary doesn't get that Jesus is raised. Mary replied, they've taken my Lord away and I do not know where they have put him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Talk about a setup. Because she thought that he was the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where they have put him and I'll take him. Like if it's a problem, not, like I'll, I'll take the body. And in that moment, Jesus said to her, Mary. And it opened her eyes. Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Mary why was it that it was her own name that opened her eyes? <laughs> I can only guess. But Mary's been called a lot of things by a lot of men. No one called her by name the way that Jesus called her by name. With a dignity that was unprecedented. And maybe you need to hear Jesus call you by name. What you have done has not undone what God can do. And he doesn't just want to call your name, Mary, Sam, Bill, Olivia, Janice. He doesn't just want to call you by name. He wants to call you to your destiny. What he says to Mary next is, is really telling for you and me right here 
Jesus replied, do not touch me, for I've not yet ascended to my Father. In other words, I've got things to, I, I need to go, so don't, don't cling to me. I've got things to do, but you've got things to do too. Go to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and informed the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what Jesus had said to her. This sentence is one of the most striking statements in all of human history. Why? Because in a day where women were not allowed to give testimony in a court of law, because they, they were not fully trusted as human beings, when women were not seen as capable as men, when women were put out and put under and held back, Jesus didn't just allow women to follow him. This woman, with this reputation, with this past, she was the first in all of the Gospels to give testimony to the greatest event of human history. Do not tell me that God cannot use you. Do not tell me that what you have done has undone what God can do through you. In fact, it isn't just that Jesus got over it. He used her past as a platform for her ministry. I don't know what God's going to call you to do. Don't ask your campus pastor at Aurora, what does God want me to do? Don't ask your campus pastor at Lafayette or at Longmont or at West. or at Don't ask your campus pastor, what does God want me to do? They don't know because they don't know what you're capable of. This is God's call to you. And it might be an after-school program for kids. It might be a feeding program for homeless. It might be a going on a mission trip. It might be using your professional skills in a way that brings honor to Jesus. It could be in a school classroom. It could be in a park or a playground. It could be in your neighborhood or in your own home. But God has something for you to do. And what you have done does not undo what God can do through you if you can get past the shame. If you can let it go, God can use you. This doesn't mean that the people you hurt will forgive you. Sometimes they don't. It doesn't mean that people will not gossip about you and say, I can't believe they're doing that. It doesn't. But that's their business with their God. Your business with your God is what are you going to do now to take your pain and make it a platform for making Jesus famous. The challenge of Mary Magdalene for me is that there's no excuses for any of us to not engage what God has for us to do. Nothing you have done can undo what God can do through you. Do you believe that? If you do, then you may hear Jesus say, your faith has made you well. Holy Father, there's so much ministry undone because we still feel undone by what we've done. But what you have done has undone what we have done. And you give us an open lane and a free, a free path to becoming the men and women that you intended for us to be. For God's sake, Holy Spirit, would you move in the hearts 
of those hearing my voice to hear you call them by name. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen.